Hey, it's been a great morning already, right? Has it been a great morning already? Uh, well, you know, we're continuing with our teaching series, Unlikely, and we have the super light topic. Uh, the title is Guilty But Repentant. So super light. It's going to be great. Uh, years ago, I was in Colorado Springs. If you don't know anything about Colorado Springs, it's almost as if like this, you know, suburban sprawl just like threw up over 100 square miles. It's like tracked homes. Everything looks like everything else. And so, it, and it's at like 8,000 feet of elevation. So you take, you know, three breaths for every one breath here, you know, at uh, normal levels of elevation. I was at a friend's house and I woke up early for a run, went for a run, and of course I got lost because, uh, you know, the air up there and also being in a new place, and everything looks the same. I went back towards uh, what I thought was my friend's house, went on what I thought was my friend's street, and went into what I thought was my friend's house. (laughs) Now, it was interesting. It was weird. I had the key in my hand. I had locked the door before leaving, and my friend said he and his wife would be gone for the whole day. Uh, And so it was weird when I heard somebody upstairs and the door was unlocked. Should have thought about that. But I went downstairs into the basement where all of my stuff was and where I was staying into their guest room. Uh, You know, it's important to note that there was no exit through the basement. And so there in the guest room for the first time, I looked at the walls and I did not see pictures of my friend's family. I saw pictures of a completely different family. And for the first time, I realized that I was definitely not in my friend's home, but fortunately, I was a runner, and I was in my running clothes. And so uh, I knew that to get out of this home that was not my friend's home, I had to run as fast as I could up the staircase, whip around through the living room, and run towards the front door. I took, mental, I took a mental moment. Ten seconds, deep breaths, and as fast as I could, I sped up the staircase, whipped around there, and aimed towards the front door, but lo and behold, there was a large man in a bathrobe obstructing the pathway. He looked at me and said, what are you doing here? I could harm you. And I said, don't harm me, I'm a pastor. (laughs) He didn't seem to care. and, uh, and then I told him that I'm from Washington. He said, Washington, D.C. or Washington State. I said, Washington State. That seemed to be a little bit better than Washington, D.C. But within the hour, and I kid you not, the hour it took me for, him to, for me to convince him that he should not harm me but rather let me go, uh, I had many times where I thought to myself, how did I get here? Have you had a how-did-I-get-here moment? Maybe Google didn't tell you about the traffic and the, or the obstruction of the, the road because of construction, and all of a sudden you're in this place, and everybody in the car is looking at you, and you're like, how did I get here? Maybe you haven't had a moment as severe as mine, but I know every one of us have had a how-did-I-get-here moment. Now, they can be funny and comical when it's uh, geography. But when we shift the conversation, the question of how did I get here from geography to the soul and our lives, it becomes anything but comical. Now, in David's life, 
We've seen many moments where we want to model and look at his behavior as an example, but today we find him in a situation where he has a how did I get here moment, and his how did I get here moment becomes a how did I get here season, and it's filled with wrong directions all the way down. Did it get a glimpse of the story? We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 17. And we'll pick it up here, and it begins saying, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, what did David do? Did he go to war? No, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, okay, you wanna, might want to underline that. You might want to think about that, because when all the kings go out to war, what did David do? He rested on his laurels. He got comfortable with his position. You could say he took his anointing for granted. And when you start taking your anointing for granted, when you start resting on your laurels, you're more liable to slip into a decision that is harmful for yourself and others. It says, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going, stoking the conversation, keeping it light. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you, you know, just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my home and eat, drink, and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and and day and the next, and at David's invitation, he ate and he drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fightings, the fighting's the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David's how-did-I-get-here moment is filled with adultery and assault, murder and cover-up, 
devastation to his family, country, and to himself. And the legacy of his decision is felt up to this moment, even by simple things. By the name Bathsheba is associated with a, a bad act, with adultery, but David's name somehow remains unpure. When you think about this story, David is the primary actor, and Bathsheba is the one who doesn't have the power and is being forced into situations that we could imagine she doesn't want to be in. We should be believing Bathsheba and holding David accountable, but the legacy has ended up with this situation. I know people that have been in situations like Bathsheba on varying levels of the spectrum, and they have a hard time even reading the Psalms because they're reminded of somebody in power that used their power to harm them, and they resonate and they connect that with David's actions, and they actually have had to pray through and work through just even being able to enjoy the Psalms. The legacy affects us up to this present day. How do we avoid David's decision? How do we avoid the pain of David's situation? Well, the first thing we do is we have to face forward. We face forward. This is what we mean by face forward. To face forward is you have to make the call to not give in to pressure of the moment or escapist pleasure. Not to give in pressure of the moment or escapist pleasure, but to commit, get marked that, to commit to the path of intentionality and legacy. Commit to the path of intentionality and legacy. When we're immersed in the present moment, it's easy to give into escapist pleasure or to give into pressure, but in those moments where we're caught in that challenging moment, our think, what we have to do is we have to think intentionality, legacy. Okay, here's the two things we do when we face forward. We consider intentionality and legacy along the terms of how will this decision affect my life and those near me? How will this decision affect my life and those near me? You have the pathways towards intentionality and legacy when you start to ask that question. Here's, here's what I believe. Let's start with just my, ourself. You know, every one of you in this room, no one is excused. Every one of you in this room, Jesus wants to bring you to, into this place where you're living more by the power of the Spirit. You're becoming more humble, more generous, more marked by wisdom. And so you think in that point, at the point where I feel pressure or the desire to escape through escapist pleasure, you have to ask the question, who does God want me to be in 20 years? Who does God want me to be in 20 years? Will this decision right here help me get towards that place there? Will this decision help me get to the point where I'm more generous, where I'm more loving, where people look at me and they're reminded of Jesus because my attitude and my actions? And then second, we have to ask the question, how will this decision affect those close to me? affect those that are in my wake because of the leadership that I exercise. And here's the thing. Sometimes we're not compelled by the vision of who God wants us to be in the future because of our own weakness. It's not because God isn't inviting us to greatness. It's not because God is not inviting us to something of beauty, beauty but because of our weakness, we're not compelled by it. So we have to ask the question, how will this decision affect others? And sometimes that's the thing that keeps us from the escapist pleasure or the pressure. Just asking, how will this affect those close to me? I remember I, was, uh, I went to a country church back when I was in college, and there was 
this pastor of small congregation. His name was Roger. He told me one time, he goes, Brian, in, a, in my weakest moment, on my hardest day, I want to get, kick the dog and empty a bottle of whiskey. I was thankful for his vulnerability. And he goes, but in those weakest moments, on those weakest days, I think of my wife, Janie. And I think about how an action like that would hurt and harm her. And in my weakest moments, in my weakest days, I'm able to avoid the pressure and the pleasure as I think about those that I would affect. Sometimes that's what keeps us. So we begin by facing forward, by thinking about ourselves, what God is inviting us to, how our decisions will affect others. But secondly, we think about that we could call the shortness of life and the length of eternity. Christians think about, in moments like that, the shortness of life and the length of eternity. Now, there was this phrase used uh, in centuries past called memento mori. It has this really uplifting message. It just says, remember you die. It's the Latin for remember you die. Simple, uplifting message. Put it on your, put it on in a little uh, happy birthday card. You know, remember you know. Um, but but um, kings would hire servants and soldiers to whisper in their ear after they conquered a city, memento mori, because the king knew that unconstrained pride led to destruction. And so they would remind them of, hey, remember. Remember, even though you've conquered the city, that one day you're, you're, there's an end to your life, and so be aware of that. Now, as followers of Jesus, we don't just memento mori in times. We don't just remember the brevity of life, but we remember the length of eternity. Check this out. Paul, writing to Peter, he says this, In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, Paul is telling Timothy, live in light of the fact that Jesus is the judge that will come one day and we will resurrect and we will face him. There's all these reasons to keep us facing forward. The beautiful life that God invites us to, we regrow in Jesus' likeness by the power of his spirit, where we think about the actions, we can bless others with our actions, or we can harm others with our actions, and then ultimately that we will one day rise and face Jesus, and what do we want that interaction to be marked by? These are all things that help us face forward, to look towards the path of legacy, the path of intentionality amidst the myriad pressures and pleasures that would seek to assault and keep us from the things that God is inviting us to. Second thing, second way that we can avoid the David scenario, that we can avoid the moves that David made, made is to not just face forward, but to face the facts. To face the facts. There are many moments in David's story where he could have faced the facts, right? He could have owned it. David, uh, what does he do? He, he gets on his rooftop and he sees a woman that he desires. He could have chopped it off there. He could have faced the facts, recognized that this is not the direction I want to go and went back downstairs. But rather, he lingers on the moment and not only that, but he sends a messenger. He could have faced the facts when he sent the messenger, sent another messenger, said, no, 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 no. 
At each point, there's time that elapses where David has the ability to come to terms with the path that he is going, but he continues to avoid facing the facts. When he sends Uriah off the battlefield, he could have faced the, oh my gosh, what have I done? Oh, I gotta, I gotta make this right. But he continues to avoid the facts rather than facing the facts. He could have faced him when he got Uriah drunk. He could have faced him when he sent the messenger to have Uriah killed. There's many points where he could have just said, owned it, I'm going to own it, I'm going to own it, I'm going to own it. But he doesn't. So in chapter 11, verse 27, we read, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. It's interesting. It's like there's just like God sees this as one event unbroken up by David's unwillingness to repent. It's just one event of, of David just moving this one direction. If it was broken up at a certain point, then you would have, you would have a, you would, it would be, it would be, it would be, there'd be, you'd be able to move or it'd be, it would have ended, but it's just kind of just this, this one thing, unbroken up by David's inability to face the facts, displeased God. Here's this uncomfortable reality, is this seed of, of facing, of avoiding the facts, like rests within all of us. If you would only have understood my motivations. No, no, no. You didn't know what I was meaning to do. Or maybe if you understood my family of origin, if you, if you knew that, you know, like what I intended to do and what we try to do is sometimes is by dodging around and usually over-explaining, we avoid the fact that we did something wrong. <laughs> and there are maybe explanations for it, but at the end of the day, we did something wrong. And in that moment... The most honoring thing to do to a person that we've hurt or did something wrong to is not to say, well, if you only under, but just to simply say, I'm sorry. Which, can I just say, is probably one of the scariest places to be. To be in a place where, like, you could try to explain it. You could try to say how the person that did something that caused you to do it, you could let go of your own agency and say, well, I was forced to do it because of these circumstances. But when you come to the person and you say, I own this, you don't bury the facts, but you face the facts. When you do that, you put yourself in a vulnerable position. Here's the beautiful thing. When you put yourself when you face the facts, and every one of us has opportunities every week in small and large ways to face the facts. But when you face the facts, you put yourself in a place where you're trusting God. You put yourself in a place of vulnerability and you're saying, I can't control the outcome. I can't control how quickly they'll forgive me. I can't control if they'll forgive me. I can't control, you know, their reaction if they're going to respond in anger, if they're going to feel like, you know, wave their finger at me and be unkind. I can't control any of that. But God, I put myself under your control and lordship and I trust myself to you. And here's the beautiful thing is that God sees that. God sees that. You know, for David, eventually he faced the facts. And it's interesting, there's a, a friend of his or a prophet, we assume he's a friend, came to David, his name was Nathan, and he told him a story about a, about a poor shepherd who had one of his sheep stolen from a thief, from a more powerful man. 
And as Nathan's told the story to David, David's blood started to curdle and he started to get angry. Why? Because he remembers being a young, poor shepherd. And he probably remembers being taken advantage of by someone more powerful than him. So Nathan tells a story that David can connect with. And then we read in verse 5 to 7, David burned with anger against the man, this person that had allegedly taken from this poor Shepherd, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then David said, or Nathan said to David, the famous words, you are that man. You are that man. It's the first time that David begins to face the facts instead of bury the facts. Where he's confronted by the reality of his decisions and the results and the consequences and everything in there. Here's this truth that we need to hear. Is that sometimes we can't face the facts on our own. Sometimes we need a Nathan. In fact, I would say if you don't have a Nathan right here in your life, if you don't have a Nathan in your life, you could become a David. If you don't have a Nathan, you could become a David. Because here's the thing, David on his own was more likely to go to people that help him rationalize his decisions and explain his decisions and, come on, king, you deserve that. No, that's yours. Get that. You're the one in power. Make that decision. That's Come on. But he didn't need those counselors that helped him rationalize and equipped him to continue to rest on his laurels. He needed somebody that told him a story about a shepherd boy that got hurt so he could, David could go there in his mind because he knew of that experience and all of a sudden he's brought back to that young place where he was anointed and he wasn't taking it for granted and he's outraged at injustice and he's returned back to his former self. Oh my gosh, the gulf between who I really am in God's eyes and who I was and where I'm at now is so big. I've got to face the facts. You could become a David if you don't have a Nathan. That's why we talk about groups. That's why we talk about growth groups. That's why we talk about opportunities for people to connect, for stories to be shared, because without the sharing of stories, trust can't be built, and that Nathan doesn't have a David, and David doesn't have a Nathan unless the stories are shared and people connection. So in this season, I just want you to say, make a point of putting something on the calendar where you're talking and you're sharing your life. It doesn't have to be all the deep stuff right at the beginning, but it has to be some level of connection and conversation, because without connection and conversation, trust can't be built. And without the trust that's be built, Nathan's not going to come up to David because Nathan doesn't know the stories. So we move from facing forward to facing the facts to the one thing that we can model after David and it is about face. It's about face is a military term. It means to make a turn aside, to make a turn so as to face the opposite direction. Remember? About face. About face. You know, when David faced the reality of the trauma he caused Bathsheba, he caused him to himself and to his nation, when he really grappled and understood that for the first time, what did he do? He, he wrote a poem to God. 
He summed up his grief and his anger and his confusion as his own actions and his remorse and his repentance in a poem in Psalm 51 uh, is this poem where at the beginning, the subscript, it's, it's etched in history of like, this isn't just a poem of remorse, but it says at the beginning of Psalm 51, it says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's etched it's etched in there. It's almost as if David says, nope, I know I'm forgiven, but I'm remembering this moment. And we get to go to that psalm when we find ourselves in a, in a place where we had to face the facts. But the first two verses say this. It says, have mercy on me, O God, According to what? Your unfailing love. Not according to my achievements. Not according to how great I am. Not according to my, my merit. Don't forgive me according to my merit, but according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, we have to say this is that grace is radical. Grace is radical. Grace is countercultural. Culturally, uh, we are permissive with those inside our tribe, and we oftentimes demand accountability for those outside of our tribe. Grace is different. God's grace sees the common failure of humanity and offers his grace to all that repent. Leave it to us. And we'll damn those outside of our tribe when they fail, and we'll permit, be permissive with those inside of our tribe if they fail. But God sees the common failure of all humanity and invites all people to repent and receive his free but costly grace. In this moment in time of in tribalism, which has been the last four or five years, we need to hold on to the radical nature of grace that is countercultural. There's a, a, a man uh, named Chuck Colson. Maybe you've heard of him. He uh, was deeply implicated in the Watergate scandal during the Nixon presidency. He was one of the Watergate seven that got caught red-handed with uh, a, a lot of the uh, deception and deceit that was involved in that Watergate scandal and the Nixon presidency. He was also involved in various other things, something called the Hard Hat Riot, where he was um, charged with inciting a riot in New York City. And he was one of Nixon's closest uh, confidants. Well, at one point, he got arrested. He was the first to get arrested. And there in prison, someone gave him a, co a copy of Mere Christianity. He read Mere Christianity. He was compelled by the truths of the faith and by Christianity. Uh, uh, an old associate of his came and shared the gospel with him. And for the first time, Colson uh, came to repentance and confessed his sin and asked humbly for God's grace to show up in his life. It was interesting that those that welcomed him into the faith were people that were Democrats and Republicans, but they shared their love of Jesus with him and welcomed him into this gospel-centered family. 
He started an organization called Prison Fellowship that sought to share the love of God and care for people that were in prison like he had experienced for himself. Now, in the midst of his conversion, it's interesting, many thought that he was just deceiving people with his conversion as another example of the deceptive practices marked out in his past. But he ended up proving that his repentance was genuine. And at one point he wrote this, whatever good I may have done is because God has saw fit to reach into the depths of Watergate and convert a broken sinner. Here's the, here's the reality, is that we have found ourselves, if we find ourselves in a situation where we have to face the facts and about face, if we find ourselves in a situation like that, Sometimes there's time it takes for trust to be built back. But the first step of building back trust is honest, owning repentance. Because you can't repair what you haven't repented of. If, so, if, if you want to repair a relationship and bring about reconciliation, that person that you've harmed and hurted, you have, to say, you have to show that you're worthy of trust by admitting that you've done something that hurt them. If you can't do that, then you never have repair, you never have reconciliation, but the, only, but the path forward towards those things is by just saying, here, I'm owning it. In a time where it's easy to kind of like find somebody that will only just reinforce the broken decisions you've made, in a time where it's easy for for you to find a blog that just excuses you of the sins that you've done. It's easy to find things that will just keep you from owning it. We just need to commit to the practice of Jesus followers for the last 2,000 years and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake about face. And it's only there where we begin to see repair. But here's the thing, the first person to, the first person to offer repair and reconciliation did it before we even repented. In God's economy, in God's economy, and worship team, you can come up. In fact, we're going to be doing communion for the first time in a long time. There's communion underneath your, uh, underneath your, your chairs. It's not as tasty as it used to be, I'm sorry. But as you have that, as you set that up, we have prayer available on the sides there, uh, on both sides. But in God's, get this, in God's economy, a broken life and God's broken body equals wholeness. I want to say that again. I want, I want us to really understand that. In God's economy, one broken life and a broken, and God's broken body equals wholeness. If you find yourself in a place where you don't know the way forward because of things you've done. It begins with God. Would you bring? Would you forgive me? And while others may take a while for to start trusting you again, God rushes to you. In fact, He's already prepared a way. He said, "I've already done it. I've already forgiven you. I've taken the full weight of your sin on my shoulders so that you could be free." It may take a while for people to start trusting you again, especially those that you've harmed. But my grace is free for you. It cost me, so it doesn't cost you. So as you take communion any time during this next song. As you take the bread, know that it's Christ's body broken for you. As you drink the cup, it's Christ's blood shed for you. 
so that your broken life doesn't have to remain broken. His broken body means you get to live in wholeness. So as a community, let's face forward. Let's face the facts. And let's about face knowing that God's grace is with us. I want to invite you to courageously step towards prayer. If you want prayer, and I just want to pray over us right now here as we step into this last song. Again, the prayers on the wings, just go there. And there's trusted people that want to pray with you. Spirit of God, fall in this place. Spirit of God, fall in this place. Bring comfort. You can bring comfort. You can bring conviction. For those of us who are doubting whether we even like, know if we believe, God, would you interrupt that doubt? For those of us wondering if anyone could love us because of the things we've done, would you interrupt that doubt? Spirit of God, come in power. Come with your love. Bring freedom in this place. That is your desire. And we pray that we would experience it. We would channel it to others. We would offer it and be pointing to it. Spirit of God, would you come in this place, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Let's stand. Let's sing.